hymn 810, hymn 810. We'll sing stanzas one and two today. Hymn 810. O God, O God, O light of light, O Prince of Peace and King of Kings, to you in heaven's glory bright, the song of praise forever rings. To him who sits upon the throne, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O God, in the glorious transfiguration of your beloved Son, you confirm the mysteries of the faith by the testimony of Moses and Elijah. In the voice that came from the bright cloud, you wonderfully foreshowed our adoption by grace. Mercifully make us co-heirs with the King in his glory and bring us to the fullness of our inheritance in heaven. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Just a few comments on the congregation at prayer for the week. We are in the second week of the section of the Catechism, Confession and the Office of the Keys. This week in the Catechism, reminding you of last week's foundational question, what is confession? It'll be repeated this week, along with what is the office of the keys? Where is it written? The words of Jesus, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And the confession of faith on the basis of this word that when the ministers deal with us by his divine command, in particular when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation and absolve those who repent of their sins and want to do better, this is just as valid and certain even in heaven as if Christ our dear Lord dealt with us himself. So forgiveness of sins is the key that opens the kingdom of heaven. And our verse for the week is Jeremiah 31 34b. Jeremiah, the prophet whom we've been hearing from in the daily readings in the congregation at prayer, um, horribly mistreated, imprisoned, persecuted for preaching the Lord, he has some of the sweetest words of gospel in the Old Testament. And one of those is before us this week in the verse, they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Knowing the Lord, who he is, knowing the Lord, what he has done, knowing the Lord, what it is to have life with him, comes in no other way than through the fountain 
of the Lord's undeserved forgiveness. Okay? It's in the section of Jeremiah where he says, No longer shall everyone teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So the fountain of salvation and the Christian life flows from this knowing that comes through forgiveness. So that's the verse for the week. And in the congregation at prayer, the Bible narratives, we saw the fall of Jerusalem and the southern kingdom last week. In the dramatic descriptions by Jeremiah and in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Now we are in the period of the exile, so Ezekiel's vision is tomorrow. Ezekiel called to be a prophet to an exiled people on Tuesday. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were taken as a part of the Babylonian captivity on Wednesday, and Nebuchadnezzar's bizarre dream on Thursday. Uh, there's no school on Friday, so we'll have a Proverbs reading. And then Saturdays, in case you haven't realized it, anticipates Sunday's uh, readings, the Old Testament and Epistle. Our hymn, O God of God, O Light of Light, it's listed in the praise section of the hymnal. Uh, in previous hymnals, it was listed in the epiphany section, and particularly with the transfiguration. Uh, I think it was moved to the praise and adoration section because sometimes people get the idea that if a hymn is in one section like Transfiguration, then we can't use it at any other time. And uh, so that helps to explain why some of these hymns uh, were taken out of certain sections where they were found in the past and moved to others. Our St. Peter <coughs> option study continues today with the beginning of the discussion on relativism and disorder versus truth and the order of beauty in creation. And I'd like to begin by reading from 2 Peter, the epistle that happens to be appointed for this Transfiguration Sunday. Beginning at verse 16 of chapter 1 in 2 Peter, the apostle makes this testimony we did not follow cunningly devised fables. A fable is a fairy tale, a story that's not true. It's a made-up story. We did not follow cunningly devised fables. And the word cunningly here then indicates that we did not follow stories intended to dupe, to trick, to mislead. But at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, a reference to the cloud that overshadowed them, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Which we heard at Jesus' baptism, but... On the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father spoke from the cloud of glory that overshadowed them this word. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word made more sure, or perhaps it would be better to say, bless you, the prophetic word was confirmed more fully in what we saw, because the prophetic word proclaimed that we would see this, and in seeing this manifestation of glory, we are seeing the fulfillment of the prophetic word, which is a theme that I've been trying to highlight for you, that the apostles did not merely witness Jesus' ministry, miracles, and preaching, which they did. But in so witnessing those, they were witnessing the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. 
And so in the transfiguration, you've got Moses and Elijah. Moses is the foundational prophet of the Old Testament. You know, through Moses, the Lord gave the Torah, the five books, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And Elijah, representative of the latter prophets. Each of these struggled with their own unbelief and battle within themselves, but each of them also beheld the glory of God's forgiving grace throughout their ministry, first for them and then for the people to whom they ministered. So the prophetic word was confirmed in the ministry of Jesus, and they were witnesses to the confirmation of that prophetic word. Uh, we also have uh, the prophetic word made more sure, and I, I want to come down to the, verse, uh, the middle of verse 19, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. And this is where that word light, the first one, as a light that shines in a dark place, is a lamp, a lamp that shines in a dark place. So the scriptures are the lamp that shine forth he who is the light of the world, namely Christ. A light in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So Jesus is described as the sunrise, the dawn of a new day. And so every time his forgiving word is received by you in your troubled life and conscience. That is a new beginning. We, because of Satan's influences, we, because of the devil's accusations, we remember our former failings. God puts them away and does not remember them. I forgive your iniquity and your sin I remember no more. That makes every day for the Christian the dawning of a new day. As Jesus said in the book of Revelation, behold, I make all things new. So, as we have said last week, you know, God knows your sins and failings better than you do. And he does not allow you to see all of them or it would utterly destroy you. But on the other side of the coin, he forgives even that which you are unaware of. And he has absolutely buried as far as the east is from the west and in the depths of the sea your transgressions. So when the devil reminds you of your sin or the sin of others that you know has been forgiven, that is devilish work intended to undermine the certainty of salvation in Christ and the living of the new life which has as its point of origin Christ's forgiveness. So we have this prophetic word made more sure, a light that shines in our hearts, knowing that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation or origin. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were literally carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now under the theme for this week, relativism and disorder, um, if I were to ask you what is relativism, what would you say? Where is Pastor Gelbach? He's over there sitting with his microphone at his side, curled up in a fetal position in the choir loft. Trying to finish my coffee. <laughs> I, I would say that relativism is defining the world on our terms as we wish as opposed to God's terms and will. Okay, good. Anything else you can want to say about relativism? 
Philip, he's in the back. You know who he is? <laughs> that there is no truth. There, there is no absolute truth. Right. And that truth is defined by the individual. So the individual's truth, it's very important, is that individual's truth that allows him to think what he wants to think, to be what he wants to be, and to do what he wants to do. So that means that in relativism, there is a radical redefinition of morality. What is moral? And no longer is God the definer of what is truth, and therefore what is morally right, but sinful humanity or the sinful individual is allowed to see and define what is true and what is right. It will be, I, I want to make it clear to you that as we go through some of these challenges to the Christian faith, almost all of them are rooted in the atheism of our age. And one of the things that atheism does, in addition to not believing in theism, you know, a god, in that sense, uh, what atheism does is it always fashions morality in the image of the person's own sinful heart. And what the person believes will give happiness, fulfillment, and so forth. So all of these, relativism is an atheistic religion, ideology. And what it brings, as the title indicates, is not order, but disorder. And a disorder which overturns or attempts to overturn everything in God's good order. So um, if you think about other areas that we'll talk about, like choosing your own gender, redefining your gender, the use of your pronouns, you know, no longer on the basis of objective biology. I mean, for 2,000 years, everybody knew what a woman was. Everybody knew what a man was. But now suddenly, that's all up for grabs, and the individual decides. And with that is the putting off of things that come from God that give us peace and contentment. And this is true not only for the Christian who accepts the truths of God's order, it also applies to the unbeliever. And I think it is something that uh, you and I as Christians sometimes fail to recognize or acknowledge. And that is that the life in this world of an unbelieving husband and wife and their children, when it is ordered according to the accepted truths of, you might call it, Judeo-Christian morality and so forth, it actually goes better for them. It's sort of like how things work. You know, if, <coughs> excuse me, um, you may not know how an internal combustion engine works, but if you know enough to put gas in the gas tank and oil in the crankcase, you'll be a lot better off than if you mix the two. One way it works fairly well, not without its problem, but the other way it doesn't work at all. And then if, um, you know, if sugar water will give you a boost, putting sugar water in your gas tank ain't going to give the internal combustion engine a, a boost. So it isn't as if, well, that it doesn't matter what you define truth to be. No, it really does matter because when truth is defined contrary to truth, God's truth, it will lead to disorder, chaos, a breakdown of an individual person's life, his marriage, his family, the society, and culture. 
So much of the breakdown that we see in our culture today is rooted in this rejection of God's truths. Okay. So what am I trying to accomplish with this? I've got a couple of bullets under the introduction here. For whom is this discussion? Uh, it is to comfort and build up Christians. So it's, it's especially for you to give you some comfort and some strength to protect the Christian congregation and the Christian marriage and family, to protect Christian children, to be given the answer for the hope that lies within us from the 1 Peter 3.15. Which means what we're talking about here, it would be good, you know, like Alec, you talk, or Carrie, you talk to Alec. Well, Alec, you talk to your dad about this too. Okay, so that you begin to take the discussions of God's word just into your family conversations. Deuteronomy 6, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Teach them diligently to your children when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You're in a far better position to defend yourself against the assaults of the evil one when you're talking about the faith and the implications of that faith and of God's word in your day-to-day -day life. When those kind of conversations are reserved for church on Sunday morning, divine service, 20-minute sermon, and never any further discussion, that leaves the door open to the voices of the world around us. If you wait to have those conversations until the devil, the world, and the flesh have done their best to sink their teeth into the Christian and rob him of the hope that lies within, I'm not saying it's too late, but it becomes very difficult then to turn the Titanic ship. So these studies are especially to build up Christians. It's not as if it has no impact then on others. The more you're built up in Christ, the more you'll be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. What are the goals? And, and these, this introduction here applies to all of these topics that we're going to be going through over the weeks ahead. The goal is that we are to be experts at Jesus. None of us can be experts at the latest, you know, like critical race theory. Where did it come from? Who are the key figures down through history? What did they believe? What did they write that have brought us up to the present? That's just one area. You can extrapolate that over all of these areas, global climate change, uh, in systemic racism, and on and on and on. And there's a danger to think that what we need the church and individual Christians to be are experts at all of those things. Actually, the priority is that we know more deeply our Lord Jesus and the gospel and the word of God so that we can answer challenges. It doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to the history and development of aberrant worldviews, but the sky's the limit on what one can learn and discern from the history. Okay? And it's one of the areas in which I've been troubled recently in, whether it's at like seminary symposia or pastor's conferences, is we'll talk about, we'll spend an hour session, 55 minutes of hang, hand wringing, talking about all of the evils and where they came from and who, who promoted what and listening to quotations from Karl Marx and his descendants and so forth. And then five minutes on, of course, we know the answer is in Jesus. And that's, that's um, a problem. It ought to be inverted the other way, especially when we're talking about not only relativism and the disorder that it creates, 
but the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and the order and the beauty that he brings to creation, and how all of creation is to be viewed in light of Jesus. I think one of the greatest um, apologists in this area in the 20th century was C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis in his books, you take the Chronicles of Narnia, for example, um, certainly articulates in the characters of evil, like the green witch of the underworld that captured and enslaved Prince Rillian. He certainly articulates what relativism, self-centered egotism does and what it creates. But more than that, he speaks of the significance of paying attention to the word of God, like in that particular novel, The Signs. Repeat the signs. And what he illustrates in that particular book is how there ain't no substitute, let's put it in Lutheran terms, for knowing the catechism. And not only knowing the words, but when you know the words well, then you're able to make use of them as you address contemporary challenges and so forth. And of course, what did they do? They forgot the signs, if you're familiar with it, and it led them in all kinds of uh, difficulties until uh, finally in the end, the Lord did his work or Aslan did his work according to the signs. So we are to be experts in Jesus, answering the challenges to the Christian faith from the scriptures based on Christology. And Christology is the study of the person and work of the Lord Jesus and of the gospel. We are to learn and rejoice in the blessed hope and salvation we have in Christ and how this brings order and beauty into our lives. So this is true. Um, we, we, can have, we have the separated conservative brethren within the church, particularly of the Reformed tradition, often do a wonderful job in talking about things like the inspiration of scripture or things like creation and over against evolution. If you go to uh, Answers in Genesis, uh, the museum that they have and the building of the ark and so forth that they have, uh, there's been lots of wonderful homework that they have done Unfortunately, it's not always strongly connected to Christology and the gospel. Um, how, many, how many of you have been to the um, museum with the, with the life-size ark? Have you been there? <laughs> Question, did any of you at the display, and, and I don't know the answer to this, I can only guess, was there anything in the display of the ark material about the sacrament of holy baptism with respect to the great flood and the ark? Did any of you see any of that? Okay. Or how about Jesus' words to the disciples? Can you drink the cup that I will drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Okay. So you see, Christology and the gospel, this is something we as Lutherans need to help our separated but conservative brothers in the faith see. Because when it is, we, are, we happen to be disciples of Jesus. We are not disciples of, um, you know, creation in the sense of creation apart from Christ, who is the creator. We're followers of Jesus. We're not disciples of marriage and family, apart from marriage and family in Jesus. We're followers of Jesus. That has implications, then, on how we look at science, what we see and extol in creation, 
and also to marriage and family. Pastor Gelbach. Reminds me of your comments about the road to Emmaus, that these are they which testify of me. The, this whole creation isn't about a creation, it's about Jesus. The flood's not about the flood, it's about Jesus. Joseph is not about, it's about Jesus. I mean, just all through that. Right, which is not to diminish, don't misunderstand, the idea that creation happened in six 24-hour days and so forth. It's not to diminish that at all. But, but let us see the creation in six literal, literal 24-hour days fulfilled on Friday afternoon. It is very good as a predictor of the week of salvation. And it is finished in Jesus. That's why the order is there. And let us see evening and morning a day as, as bespeaking the death and resurrection of Christ. This is why the scriptures say things like salvation was prepared and planned before the foundation of the world. So the lunar eclipse on Good Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, the manifestation of the star that the wise men rejoiced to see that led them to worship Jesus, that was all hurled into existence by God at the time of creation to proclaim Christ. See? And then you begin to see how this bespeaks the beauty of the truth of God's created order because the beauty of the truth of God's created order is anchored in him who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I think we as Christians sometimes think about we have salvation in Jesus. He died, rose again. He forgives us by grace through faith. And then that has nothing to do with marriage, family, global climate change, uh, critical race theory, black lives matter, etc., etc., etc. And that's what I'm trying to uh, begin to argue as we go forward here. Uh, so we are to learn and rejoice in the blessed hope of salvation we have in Christ and how this brings order and beauty into our lives. Why? Because we are disciples of Jesus. We testify in our preaching, living, and witness to one another and to the world. In quotes, to this life which is good and beautiful and the source of salvation. If you will turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. In, in um, my study and preparations for this series, the investigation of the Apostle Peter and what it is that he, uh, you know, experienced in his life, particularly uh, the experience of his own shortcomings and so forth, and then what God in his grace, what Christ did to rescue him from that, and how that how that shaped his capacity to be a, an apostle and to be faithful. It's reminiscent, um, Jim, of the making of a theologian, Luther said, you know, oratio, meditatio, and tentatio. Oratio is fervent prayer. Meditatio is the meditation or the study of the sacred scriptures. And tentatio is the testing, the suffering that comes from without and within. And while the Lord Jesus wasn't joyfully endorsing Peter's denial of him three times in the courtyard of the high priest, nevertheless, the Lord in his grace used that tentatio and the, the, how his conscience was totally, you know, devastated by what he had done to make of him a better theologian. So in Acts chapter 5, uh, the passage specifically is verse 20 that talks about uh, this life. But I would like you to um, go ahead of this to verse, uh, verse 12, through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. They're in Solomon's porch in the temple. Believers were increasingly added to their number, 
and people just wanted to get a glimpse of Peter or have his shadow fall on some of them. And the apostles are doing the same kind of thing that Jesus did in his ministry in the healing signs where he ministered to the totality of human need. Those miracles give testimony to that. Then at verse 17, the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, the high priests were taken from the sect of the Sadducees. They denied the resurrection and life after death. And the high priest, verse 18, laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. And this was specifically Peter and John. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. Okay, you have your Greek Testament there? All the words of this life. It's a zoe, the life. It corresponds to John 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the zoe, all the words of this life. We're talking about Christ. All the words of Christ, the life that is found in Christ. And to speak all the words. Now, this, this buttresses the point of before. What we need to be experts at is Jesus. And while you can see in the epistles of Peter allusions to the challenges of the faith in his day, what he does in both of his epistles is deepen our understanding of the person and work of Jesus, of the life that is found in Christ. So when they, heard that, when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to have them uh, to the prison to have them brought. It's actually a comical scene because uh, the angel of the Lord releases them from prison in the night. Go, preach all the words of this life. Okay. So they go into the temple and they're preaching and then they convene the Sanhedrin Go get these men. Get them out of the prison. They go to get them. They're not there. And then they report, they're not there. They're not there. They're not there. And I can envision somebody, you know, walking around the room where the Sanhedrin is meeting. What do we do? And then they, somebody looks out the window and sees them right smack dab back in the courtyard of the temple preaching again. And when you look at the book of Acts, when you look at the preaching summaries, whether it's Peter or Paul, they all have a familiar ring to them. They are, first of all, deeply scriptural as they make use of the Old Testament. And they all center on the person and work of Christ, his death and resurrection and the call to repentance. And St. Paul in Athens, for example... He does connect with the society and culture. When he comes into Athens and he's at the Areopagus on Mars Hill and he says, I see you are in all ways very religious. And they were. They were very religious. They were pagans. They had gods to everything. And he says, I've even observed an altar to an unknown god. So, you see, he meets them where they're at, and that's part of what we're called to do as Christians. But then he immediately goes on, after meeting them where they're at, to take them on to talk about the gospel. He said, him whom you do not know, I will proclaim to you. The God who made the heavens and the earth and all things. He talks about creation, and then he links it to the man Christ Jesus, God made of every nation from one blood, the first Adam, and now in the man whom he has appointed, Jesus of Nazareth, his son, he has brought life and salvation. Him I proclaim to you. He was put to death, but God the Father raised him from the dead, and when they heard resurrection, some of them scoffed at this babbler, but he proclaimed it anyway. And you see in the Acts example at Athens with Paul, 
what Christians not only are called to do, testify to Christ in the face of a pagan world. That's what, that's, we're living in a pagan world right now. You know, all you tree huggers out there, Pat, okay? Uh, we live in a pagan world. We see the deities of, you know, like, it's, it's not different from Egypt. You know, the plagues in Egypt, the nine plagues, the gods of the underworld, of this world, of the overworld, but God uh, pronounces judgment on all of them with the nine plagues. So Paul meets them where they're at, but then he takes them immediately onto Christology, and when he testifies to the resurrection, they scoff. But he does it anyway. And the greatest testimony to the resurrection is that he and Peter and the others were willing to die for this faith. Who dies for, like Peter says in the first reading, cunningly devised fables. Fables intended to trip. Okay? And the beauty of the apostolic witness gives testimony then uh, to the beauty of the gospel that permeates all things in creation. Okay, um, so Peter is testifying to this life, and I, I wanted you to see that, and it runs throughout the book of Acts. Now let's go ahead uh, and talk a little bit more about what is relativism and to what does it lead. There is no absolute truth. Truth is relative and subjective. Each person decides truth for himself. It leads to a denial of natural law, the destruction of the body and soul, mental and spiritual illness, disorder and chaos, and a breakdown of the communal structures of marriage, family, community, culture, society, and government. Now I'm going to stop there and make a couple of comments. I have found in discussions with atheists an interesting phenomenon. On the one hand, the truth is put forward, the, their truth, that there is no truth. But on the other hand, I have noticed in their rhetoric the need for truth. It, it seems... Uh, contradictory, and in many ways it is, and exploiting the contradiction of a thesis is one of the things that God's use of logic helps us to do, and the, the uh, ministerial use of reason. But they deny absolute truth, and yet they are wanting to establish a truth. So let me give you an example. I ask an atheist, there, there is no God. No, there is no God. And there is no absolute truth. No, there is no absolute truth. So then, can you think of a question I might ask? If there is no God and there is no absolute truth, why can't I kill you? Because you can't. Well, I know it's maybe it's against the laws of the, of the nation. It's kind of an outdated thing. No, but that's not what they mean. It would not be good. Well, if there's, no, <laughs> if there's no God and there's no absolute truth, why wouldn't it be good if I want to? According to my morality, I want to kill you. So why can't I? Well, because it would be contrary to what is best for humanity. Now, I'm, by the way, I'm quoting a conversation. Okay, it would be contrary to what is best for humanity. Says who? Well, humanity needs to live and continue and not be destroyed, and murder would not allow it to continue. Why does it have to continue? Why? Who says so? Do you see? So on the one hand... Truth is relative, there is no absolute truth, but on the other hand, there's a clamoring to establish truth. Now, this is significant because it bespeaks of something we call natural law. That while it is true, apart from the word of God, we cannot come to faith. 
That doesn't mean that the scriptures are false when they say that the law of God is written within our hearts and in the hearts of all people. Okay? So deep down, the atheist who is arguing this way knows that murder is wrong because of the natural law written in his heart. Okay? And this is where you have to understand that even though it seems as if Christianity is you know, on the decline and being destroyed and so forth, God's law is still written in the hearts of individuals. And when we speak about natural law, we're not only talking about truths in the abstract, but go back to the primary theses. All truth finds its origin in the one who is truth. So in other words, we need the help of God's word to do it. But by appealing to natural law, we want them to see and to hear an appeal to Christ and the beauty and the goodness of the gospel. Okay? And so, I mean, you take that example, for example, of, you know, it would be against humanity and it wouldn't be good for humanity. What does Jesus do? He lays down his life in love so that another might live. And so the example I went, uh, talked about on issues, et cetera, this last week was 9-11, where you see an example of the natural law, not only an expression of the sanctity of life, but also the law of love, so to speak, that is part of the natural law, where people who maybe weren't Christians were willing to go into the burning twin towers knowing full well that they might lose their life in order to save the life of another. That is a beautiful expression of the law of love in Christ, actually, that is written in the hearts. I'm not saying that they believe in Jesus. That's not the point. But there is something fundamentally beautiful about giving your life so that someone else might live as opposed to thinking only about yourself. You see? And that's the uh, continuing on with this paragraph then. It is fundamentally self-centered and selfish. It is totalitarian and subjugates all who oppose the truth, the truth as they uh, see it, that is not anchored in the objective truth of God's word and natural law. Ha have you noticed the fascistic way in which a world of relativism will accept any truth as long as it is not divine truth. It is not open to reason, therefore, but opposed to reason. It is not open to scientific investigation, but opposed to it in favor of its chosen worldview. Relativism leads to atheism and a rejection of divine authority. Relativism leads to a rejection, therefore, of Christ. This final example before you go away. Christians have often been led to jettison their faith when their faith conflicts with what their subjective will wants to do. So you got this battle. The subjective will, the will of the flesh, you know, Jesus says, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, murder, theft, adultery, fornication, false witness. And it's not simply that they come out of the heart, but the will of the flesh wants those things, desires those things. So when that conflicts with the Christian's faith and what the Christian's will desires, it can create an untenable situation within the conscience. Something has to give. So I either renounce the flesh and confess the sin and flee from it to Christ's mercy, or I jettison my faith and flee to that which my flesh wants. And I can, quote, live with myself if I've gotten rid of the obstacle. Okay. So it may... Uh, 
If a troubled conscience is not relieved by God's word, which calls one to repentance and faith, it may reject the faith entirely in favor of its own view of morality in order to live with itself. And so an example there, a child who goes off to college and is swept up into activities that he knows are wrong, but his flesh desires them. These activities conflict with his faith and what he knows to be right. So he renounces his faith in order to cope with the guilt. And so this is, examples like this are important before they happen. So going back to Carrie and Alec here to talk about these things and what the threats are prior to them happening helps to equip our children, our young people, and ourselves for when those assaults take place. Okay. Um, next Sunday, we'll continue the discussion where, where does relativism come from, and we'll go into a number of uh, passages uh, from First Peter and elsewhere. Randy, very quickly, speak up. There's one comment. The middle hymn during the distribution today, the third verse, really struck me of how it's a synthesis of everything that we're talking about. Which, which hymn? Swiftly past the cloud of glory. Number hymn. 416. If you read the third verse, it reads, Lord, transfigure our perception with the purest light that shines, so the action done on us, and recast our life's intentions to the shape of your designs, yeah. Yeah. till we seek no other glory than what lies past Calvary's hill, and our living, and our dying, and our rising by your will. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant and a great insight. That stanza captures what I'm arguing for. And, and it also, uh, when we continue to talk through this discussion about beauty, okay, uh, the, this is why the church and the gospel, I'm sorry, uh, it doesn't, won't offend our congregation, but it will offend some, to say that music and singing are optional is wrong. That, that the full cornucopia, where's John? Okay, am I using that word? The full cornucopia of the arts need to be employed in the service of the gospel because, you know, the beauty of our Lord in the body is shaped and proclaimed in art, both the visual and the musical and so forth. All right, we have to uh, prepare for the divine service. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all.